Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. The Justice Department coming out with its first major lawsuit tied to a landmark abortion ruling. Idaho's trigger law is challenged. Monkeypox emergencies now declared in multiple states. Which ones are most affected? And the White House today taking action to stop the spread. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi lands in Taiwan as China threatens military action. The White House response and what comes next. A former special envoy for the Abraham Accords says the recent U.S. strike that took out al-Qaeda leader Ayman al-Zawahiri is likely a meaningful blow to the terrorist organization. But is it enough? Corporate America backing race-based college admissions. Several companies submit a legal brief. What this means for business success. An update to that $10 million vaccine mandate-related settlement. An attorney in the lawsuit calls it a warning to employers. National superstar Juan Soto heads to a contender in a massive seven-player deal just hours before baseball's trade deadline passes. The Justice Department under President Biden is taking its first action against a state after the overturning of Roe v. Wade. The DOJ is suing Idaho, saying the state's abortion law violates a federal law on medical treatment. Under a federal law known as the Emergency Medical Treatment and Labor Act, or EMTALA, every hospital that receives Medicare funds must provide necessary stabilizing treatment to a patient who arrives at an emergency room suffering from a medical condition that could place their life or health in serious jeopardy. In some circumstances, the medical treatment necessary to stabilize the patient's condition is abortion. The abortion law in Idaho was passed two years ago and slated to take effect on August 25th. It would make it a felony for health care providers to carry out abortions punishable by up to five years in prison. There are exceptions for rape and incest and if the life of the mother is in danger. Attorney General Merrick Garland says the Justice Department, quote, will use every tool at our disposal to ensure that pregnant women get the emergency medical treatment to which they are entitled under federal law. Similar lawsuits targeting abortion bans in other states are likely to follow. And in Georgia, the Department of Revenue announced on Monday that taxpayers can claim a deduction for a fetus with a detectable heartbeat. This comes after a federal court ruled on July 20th that the Georgia law banning most abortions could take effect. But there are some requirements. If the tax department asks for relevant medical records and documents, taxpayers have to provide them. Eligible taxpayers can claim up to $3,000. And more in medical news, three states are now under monkeypox emergencies, up from only one last week. The federal government has announced it's taking more action to deal with the spread. Here's that story. President Biden on Tuesday issued a statement saying he's appointing two federal officials to coordinate his administration's response to the monkeypox spread. One of them is Robert Fenton, a FEMA regional director. He'll serve as the White House monkeypox coordinator. The other is Dimitri Daskalakis, the HIV prevention chief with the CDC. He'll serve as deputy coordinator. The move comes after California and Illinois declared monkeypox emergencies on Monday. New York was the first state to take action last week when it declared monkeypox a threat to public health. California Governor Newsom said in a statement they'll continue to work with the federal government to secure more vaccines, raise awareness about reducing risk, and stand with the LGBT community fighting stigmatization. In New York's announcement, the state commissioner of health said the spread has affected mostly communities that identify as men who have sex with men. The White House also previously confirmed that the virus primarily spreads among gay men. According to LGBTMAP.org, New York and California both have a relatively high gay population compared to other states in the U.S. So far, less than 6,000 people have been afflicted with monkeypox in the United States. Around a quarter of those, or 1,400 cases, have been recorded in New York, and more than 800 in California. All case numbers are based on data provided by the CDC. 
And looking abroad now, as the world watches, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi landed in Taiwan today, defying threats from Beijing. NTD's Iris Tao has that story. Touching down in Taiwan late Tuesday night, U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi defies warnings from China and becomes the highest-ranking U.S. official to visit the democratically ruled island in a quarter century. Upon arrival, Pelosi releasing a statement saying America's solidarity with the island is, quote, more important today than never, as the world faces a choice between autocracy and democracy. USA Taiwan welcome Nancy. And supporters around the airport telling NTD that they're grateful for her standing up to Beijing. The Chinese Communist Party is ruthlessly trying to marginalize Taiwanese internationally. Yet Speaker Pelosi is willing to stand up for Taiwan against all odds. The visit prompting a furious response from China, which claims Taiwan as its own and has repeatedly threatened to annex it by force. State media has reported that Chinese fighter jets were crossing the Taiwan Strait as Pelosi was arriving. And just minutes after her plane landed, China's army announced it would conduct live fire exercises around the island. It's exactly in line with the playbook that we anticipated. But the White House, while reiterating it does not support Taiwan independence, says the U.S. is prepared for Beijing's actions. We will continue to support Taiwan, defend a free and open Indo-Pacific, and seek to maintain communication with Beijing. And U.S. lawmakers coming together in a rare bipartisan moment. You do not want the Chinese Communist Party dictating to senior American leaders where they can and cannot travel. And after spending her night in Taipei, the House Speaker is meeting with Taiwanese President Tsai Ing-wen on Wednesday. She's also reportedly meeting with activists about China's human rights abuses. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Iris Tao, NTD News. And more on international relations. Today, I spoke with the Abraham Accords former special envoy, Arie Lightstone, who says terrorist leader Ayman al-Zawahiri's death is likely a meaningful blow to al-Qaeda. Arie Lightstone, thank you so much for joining us. Stephanie, thank you for having me. Could you paint a picture of who Ayman al-Zawahiri was and the role he played in al-Qaeda? Well, who he was was a evil, bad, and wicked man. Uh, but there are plenty of evil, bad, and wicked people that run around. Very few of them have his level of competence, strategic vision, and leadership abilities. And what you find with many terror organizations, they tend to be as strong as their leadership at the top. And just like when the United States of America took out Qasem Soleimani, uh, crippled the Iranian terror regime for a period of time, so too... Uh, with the uh, killing, uh, targeted killing, and appropriately so, uh, we hopefully have struck a meaningful blow to al-Qaeda, uh, and not fast enough, uh, by the way. When these leaders have the ability to operate with a great degree of freedom, as we can see that he was operating from a villa in the middle of Kabul, Afghanistan, that gives them enormous opportunity to be able to create chaos and sow destruction and his death is something that we should celebrate. So how significant is this death, and what does it mean for global security from terrorists? Uh, well, it probably means two things. In the long run, it means that we are all safer. In the short run, I think that we should be cautious in terms of potential retaliations that can happen via lone wolves and uh, people who want to carry the flag proverbially or otherwise to follow their sainted leader. Obviously, I'm using sainted here in a sarcastic fashion. When a leader of an organization like this is taken out, because when we have them on the run, it's difficult for them to be able to operate with true operational security. So therefore, when we're able to eliminate a meaningful leader like this, we should be able to strike a significant blow to al-Qaeda. The fact that he was able to sit there in Kabul, though, and to sit there in a villa, and it seems like he was openly welcomed by the Taliban there gives me concern in terms of how successful he has been recently in terms of recruitment. It's much easier to recruit from a villa in Kabul than it is from under a cave in Pakistan. Hmm. Now, how could the killing of this leader impact U.S. relations with the Middle East in general? Well, I think two different things. I think this is a good positive step for the Biden administration to demonstrate that 
uh, regardless, Republican or Democrat, if you attack Americans, we will find you. And this is a good moment to thank all of the operatives and intelligence officers who have spent countless hours, days, weeks, months, years uh, hunting down this killer of Americans. And it's important to know that this is an American policy, and credit to President Biden for having done so. The question is, again, why he was operating freely in Kabul, the capital of Afghanistan. This never should have happened. Somebody like this should never see the light of day. He should be 11 stories underground in some cave groveling for food instead of sitting there with a family reunion. So we have sort of two messages. Number one is the United States of America will track you down. But number two is the United States of America, with our incredibly embarrassing retreat from Afghanistan, has created what we predicted, which is a vacuum where leaders of terror organizations seem to be able to act and show their face with impunity. Hopefully this shows that they can't show their face with that same degree of impunity. And what other security threats do you think the U.S. should focus on in the region? Well, I think the first thing is close the border. When you have a situation where you have to be concerned about security, lock your doors at night. And the key is, is what can we do to make even the most simple attacks as impossible that we can? And part of doing that is to have very basic security. We can learn this from our ally, Israel. Uh, Israeli planes are protected and defended wherever it is in the world that they fly and wherever it is in the world that they land. The borders of Israel are very tightly secured. There's sort of a basic blocking and tackling that says, my number one job as a country is to protect my citizens. And that really should be the renewed focus of the United States of America. Knowing that we've chased this guy to the ends of the earth to eliminate him is satisfactory. Knowing that we're not taking care of our own citizens at home, to me, is foolish. Looking at related issues in that region, Iran, a state sponsor of terrorism, has said that it could destroy New York with ballistic missiles. The regime claims that it has the power to make nuclear weapons. How do you think the Biden administration should respond? Well, how they are responding is trying to run into a deal where we're going to shake their hands, give them tens of billions, if not hundreds of billions of dollars of economic relief, and hope that they suddenly rejoin the community of nations. This is what they're willing to say while they're still wanting to negotiate with us. Imagine what will happen the day that those negotiations are open. This is them, if you will, guarded and trying to be more mature on the world stage. Uh, what we need to understand is that they are the number one funder of terrorism. They produce people like uh, the fellow that we just killed who represented al-Qaeda. There are numerous terror organizations that they fund and they support that go after us in the United States, go after our allies in South America and the region. We need to demonstrate loudly and clearly that this is intolerable and we will stand against it, certainly. Them operating with the protection of a nuclear umbrella has to be something that's an anathema, not only to us, but to all of our allies. And we have to get the Europeans on board with this as well. So in your view, what should the Biden administration do next? I think they should go back to the Trump administration policy, which is to lay out the 12 uh, items that Secretary Pompeo said Iran can do to re-enter into uh, the polite society of the community of nations. And once they do that, we'll welcome them at the negotiating table with open arms. Iran would be a fantastic uh, addition to a stable Middle East once they're ready to commit to being part of a stable Middle East as opposed to being the source of all of the instability in the Middle East. Until that happens, we're demonstrating appeasement. I will credit Speaker Pelosi for showing up to Taiwan today. I think that demonstrates that we're not looking to appease. I think that we're looking to be strong and we're looking to stand with our allies. There's no reason why that shouldn't be extrapolated to the Middle East. We should stand strongly against Iran. We should stand with Israel, Saudi, United Arab Emirates, and demonstrate that there's a difference in between good and evil, and we're on the side of good. Arie Lightstone, former special envoy for the Abraham Accords, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Stephanie. And over in Texas, an invitation to tour the southern border. Texas Governor Greg Abbott is inviting the mayors of Washington, D.C. and New York City to witness the border crisis. D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser, a Democrat, recently requested the help of the National Guard to deal with the soaring number of illegal immigrants in her city. Meanwhile, New York City Mayor Eric Adams recently criticized Abbott's decision to send illegal immigrants to D.C. Abbott says the mayor's interest in the border situation is a welcome development. He's inviting Bowser and Adams to tour the Texas-Mexico border and meet with local officials. The Texas governor says he wants the two mayors to see the dire situation at the border firsthand and to ask President Biden to secure the border.
and moving on to higher education. Corporate America says it supports affirmative action. Nearly 70 companies involved themselves in a case against race-based college admissions. NTD's Arlene Richards has the details. Kicking off a new term in October, the Supreme Court is set to hear cases that challenge what a group calls racially discriminatory admissions policies. And now corporate America has decided to throw in its two cents. In a 31-page brief citing empirical studies on diverse groups, almost 70 corporations urged the court to keep the race-based policies. They say their diversity, equity, and inclusion programs are successful because of university admissions policies and that people of all races and ethnic backgrounds deserve a seat at every table. Students for Fair Admissions filed lawsuits claiming admissions policies penalize white and Asian American applicants. We reached out to the president of Students for Fair Admissions, Edward Blum, for comment. He said in an email to NTD that SFFA would file a response with the Supreme Court in a month. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. A hospital recently agreed to pay over $10 million in a class action lawsuit for not granting religious accommodations in its COVID-19 vaccine policy. Now an attorney on the legal team that won the lawsuit says this should be a warning to employers. NTD's Jason Perry has that story. When COVID-19 vaccine mandates came to the workplace, thousands of people applied for religious accommodations, but most of them were denied. Recently, in a class action lawsuit, a Chicago health system agreed to pay over $10 million to more than 500 healthcare workers for denying them religious exemptions from the system's COVID-19 vaccine mandate. There is no pandemic pause button on our individual rights. I spoke with Matt Staver, the founder of Liberty Council and an attorney in the lawsuit against North Shore University Health System. At first, North Shore was looking at these individual religious accommodation requests and exemption requests, but then they decided to just simply blanket deny every single one. That's clearly unlawful. They did not individually assess each person's religious exemption request and try to modify and accommodate their particular situation. They just denied them across the board. But North Shore was not alone in doing this. Many, many employers across the country also gave blanket denials. They either had the job or jab alternative. And if you didn't get the jab, you lost your job. And he said $10.3 million should send a strong message to employers with vaccine mandates. They ought to be concerned because they could also be sued and be part of a class action settlement. In fact, this is not the last class action that Liberty Council will be involved in. We've received requests from thousands of employees across the country with different companies that had similar policies to North Shore. We reached out to North Shore for comment and they said, the settlement reflects implementation of a new system-wide vaccine policy, which will include accommodation for team members with approved exemptions, including former employees who are rehired. Jason Perry, NCD News. Now to the latest budget bill. Democrats are selling their bill as a way to fight inflation. Many economists and government think tanks are now signing off on it. Not everyone is buying it, though. Here's NTD's Melina Weisscup with more. What originally started as a $3.5 trillion budget plan, then cut down to $1.75 trillion, is now about $400 billion worth of investments. Democrats have rebranded and renamed what was originally President Biden's Build Back Better bill. Democrats now calling it the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. It's on track to pass the Senate this week. Here's Senate Leader Chuck Schumer on the Senate floor today expressing the need to pass this new budget plan. This bill will, quote, fight inflation and will lower costs for American families while setting the stage for strong, stable, and broad sh broadly shared long-term economic growth. Healthcare is a large portion of where Democrats aim to lower costs, investing $64 billion to extend the Affordable Care Act and capping the price of prescription drugs. Vance Jen, who previously worked on economic policy for the White House, explains why it could attract the opposite results as intended. What they assume to go into um, you know, the Affordable Care Act and allow for these extensions, these subsidies to go through, that would potentially only reduce the prices of health care. Um, and I, I question whether that would even be the case because really you're just subsidizing, increasing demand in the health care marketplace without providing additional supply, so the prices are likely to go up. 
To offset the costs of these investments, the budget bill relies on projections that in 10 years, the government will be able to rake in $700 billion in tax revenue. However, revenue projections are highly volatile, especially in times like now when the economy is slowing. In the, that, that slows down tax receipts, tax collections that are coming into the government because the people are making as much in income and things of that nature. But if you looked at the full 10 years, like they're, they're budgeting in for the tax hikes and everything else, um, that would bring down this debt reduction from about $300 billion to only $90 billion, which is we had a, we had a $90 billion deficit um, just last month. And as of today, the Senate parliamentarian, that is the Senate rules advisor, is still reviewing the details in this bill, making sure it meets all the standards for reconciliation. While that process is still ongoing, and we have yet to hear from a key centrist Democrat, Kirsten Sinema from Arizona, about whether or not she would support this bill, Senate leader Chuck Schumer today expressed full confidence that this bill will pass this week. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskopf, NTD News. Coming up, Twitter lifts its ban on independent news outlet The Epic Times after a flood of public criticism. We speak to a senior staff member at the newspaper about what could be behind the censorship. And amid all the push for green energy, one fossil fuel is making a comeback. Will it last? That and more coming up on NTD News. Speaks, we don't just scratch the surface. We want to go wide and deep. Our viewers come away with a much richer news of the day. We really make a big effort to bring on different voices onto the show. We don't just talk to experts and newsmakers, which of course are extremely important, but we also want to hear from the American people. So the people who are impacted by the policies and issues that we're talking about, because what they have to say is just as important to the national conversation. Welcome back. As you may know, after about 40 hours and following a flood of public criticism, Twitter stopped censoring content from the epic independent news outlet, The Epic Times, over the weekend. The reversal is a fairly uncommon move from the platform, but censorship is unfortunately not an uncommon experience for our sister media. To dig into this issue, what could be behind it, and what may lie ahead, Earlier today, I spoke with Joshua Phillip, who's a senior investigative journalist with the Epic Times and the host of the show Crossroads. Joshua Phillip with the Epic Times, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, always a pleasure, Stephanie. Now, on Thursday, Twitter blocked Epic Times content. Could you walk me through what happened? Well, you know, Twitter didn't really tell us what happened. We were going on Twitter, people were sending us messages. And apparently they blocked all of our content on Twitter. So people would share our content. It was blocked. Uh, we tried figuring out what was happening. We tried contacting Twitter. We tried, you know, really wondering. We were wondering if this was a glitch, whether it was a policy. We got nothing back from them. They said nothing to us. Finally, we started getting a lot of support, a lot of different representatives stepping forward to support us. And after about two days, Twitter just restored it and also didn't tell us anything. So we, that's about as much as we know right now, but the behavior was very, very suspicious. And the censorship started after a J6 documentary was released by the Epic Times, as well as an interview on human trafficking. What was shown in the J6 documentary? So we did a documentary called The Real Story of January 6th that I think goes over all the major pieces of evidence on January 6th. You know, was there violence on behalf of the protesters? Was there police violence? Uh, who was in charge of security that day? Who was in charge of managing that? What happened? What went wrong? Who's responsible? And I think we really debunk, frankly, a lot of the prevailing narratives around January 6th in, in ways that are pretty significant. Um, so that we published that, that wasn't immediately censored. We can't publish it on YouTube, for example, and some other platforms, but it was not immediately censored by Twitter. We partly suspect that might be the cause. As you mentioned too, American thought leaders, uh, one of the other, one of the other shows on Epic TV, uh, they also did a video on human trafficking and that's also maybe one of the suspected ones, although we're not really sure also. So do you think the public outcry is what led to your content being restored on Twitter? 
Uh, without a doubt, I think the public outcry is what led to the content being restored on Twitter. I'd say that's actually a pretty big win for us as well, because these big tech platforms, they tend to just not do that normally. If they ban you, you're usually banned. It's very rare. They do it sometimes, but it's very rare for them to walk that back. And I do believe that's because they didn't really have a justifiable reason to block us. And I believe they understood as well that if these different representatives stepping forward to support us and the amount of support we did get, if that were to continue, it would be very damaging to them during this time. And I assume that's what happened. Although, again, we don't really know because they did. They have said nothing to us uh, before and after this. And the Epic Times has a history of being censored by big tech for various news reports. Are you concerned in any way about the state of free press in the U.S.? So, well, two questions. Yeah. So Epic Times, we've been we've been censored pretty much from the get go. We've been censored by Google. We've been censored by Facebook. We've been censored by YouTube. It, pretty much most of the big tech platforms, many of them censor us in one way or another. Uh, we believe part of that originally was because of Chinese Communist Party pressure, something that's been very frequent for us from the beginning of the paper. Uh, but also, we do believe as well that this is a, a broader threat to free press in general, because when companies create technologies to even censor, if they even demonstrate the ability to cancel all the content of a site, that means they have those capabilities in place. And oftentimes what you'll see is they'll start by censoring one person, then the next, then the next. And before you know it, you know, entire topics are banned, entire subjects are banned, certain type of speech is banned, and they begin enforcing this in, I'd say, incrementally more and more authoritarian ways. I think right now the world is pretty deep into this to the point where uh, a lot of people have been banned from these platforms. A lot of people believe they're shadow banned from these platforms. And it's having a serious and very real impact, not just on free speech, but on even the public's ability to be exposed to like accurate information at this point. Joshua Phillips, senior investigative journalist with the Epic Times. Thank you so much for your time. Hey, pleasure. Thank you. Eleven people are facing charges for a crypto pyramid and Ponzi scheme that raked in over $300 million from global investors, including some in the U.S. The Securities and Exchange Commission, or SEC, is charging them for violating federal securities laws. The pyramid scheme involved the website Forsage.io, launched in January 2020. It allowed retail investors to carry out transactions using smart contracts. Investors made profits by recruiting more people into the scheme, with Forsage using assets from new investors to pay older investors. The SEC charged four founders of Forsage, three U.S.-based promoters of Forsage, and multiple members of a group that promoted Forsage in the U.S. They are accused of violating the registration and anti-fraud provisions in federal securities laws. And another fossil fuel, coal, is making a comeback. Consumption is expected to reach record high usage this year. NTD's Phil Zhou reports. Move aside renewable energy, fossil fuels like coal are making a comeback. Electricity uh, demand is, is, is up. I don't think the, the sector really responded well to the bouncing back from the pandemic. They're looking for alternatives and coal keeps coming up. Coal prices are soaring, and coal consumption is expected to rise 0.7%, reaching a near 10-year high, according to the International Energy Agency. James Van Nostren is the director at the Center for Energy and Sustainable Development at West Virginia University School of Law. A lot of it's due to the disruption in the energy markets caused by the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Some of it's caused by some supply chain issues as we as we bounce back from the pandemic. He's also the author of the book, The Coal Trap. Basically, you've got a curtailment of natural gas supplies, which causes natural gas prices to go up. And so coal is substituted for that, and that causes increased demand for coal, so higher coal prices. It's, but I think these, a lot of these things are pretty much are pretty short-term. Sankar Sharma is a market analyst who foresaw the coal comeback months ago. Coal in the short term is going to be quite a bit in demand. Um, because it's cheaper to produce and the infrastructure in many places are already existing. Sharma says he expects the demand for natural gases in general to continue going up, at least in the short term. The problem everyone has got currently, we can't create a new alternate energy sources overnight. And nuclear energy costs money. In Europe, coal consumption is expected to rise 7% this year alone. That's on top of the 14% increase from last year. Phil Zhou, NTD News. 
And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. And coming up, California tried to remove the three strikes law this year. According to one attorney, it would have made it easier for criminals to commit more serious crimes. A national superstar Juan Soto heads to a contender in a massive seven-player deal just hours before baseball's trade deadline passes. NTD's Dave Martin brings us the details after the break. Welcome back. Five states are holding primary elections today. Those are Arizona, Kansas, Michigan, Missouri, and Washington State. Let's take a look at some of the key races. In Michigan, Republicans will choose a candidate to face off against Democratic Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Five political newcomers are competing in a tight race. Former President Trump on Friday endorsed conservative commentator Tudor Dixon. Trump also jumped into a House race in a district currently represented by Republican Congressman Peter Mayer. He was one of the 10 House Republicans who voted to impeach Trump. The former president has endorsed businessman and missionary John Gibbs, who worked in the Trump administration. Democrats don't want Peter Meyer to win that primary. They want this, this, uh, this Gibbs guy to win because he is Trump-endorsed, much more conservative, um, and has taken some positions that that electorate will not, it's not that they won't stand for it, but they don't fit the district, right, now that it's Democratic-leaning. And over in Kansas, voters will decide whether the state will continue to allow access to abortion. Kansas is the first state to vote on abortion after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. The election commissioner of Wyandotte County says putting the question on the ballot has had an impact. And we're getting a lot of um, increased voter turnout because of it. I think uh, early voting as of this morning, we have about 2,000 more early voters than we did back in 2018. And we have a little over 1,000 more um, voters who requested a ballot than we did back in 2018. So we definitely have an uptick in, in, in uh, voter registration and people getting out to vote. In Missouri, the race for Republican Senate nomination is between former Governor Eric Gretens and Eric Schmidt, the state attorney general. On Monday, Trump made an unusual statement saying he's endorsing Eric. Both Gretens and Schmidt claimed Trump's endorsement in tweets sent just minutes apart. When asked for clarification, a Trump spokesman said the statement speaks for itself. In Arizona, voters will pick between Trump-backed gubernatorial candidate Carrie Lake and Karen Taylor Robson, who has the backing of former Vice President Mike Pence. For Democrats, Arizona Secretary of State Katie Hobbs is facing Marco Lopez, a former Obama administration official and former mayor of Nogales, a border city. Arizona Governor Doug Ducey will not run again due to term limits. And in Washington state, the 3rd Congressional District is represented by Jamie Herrera Butler, who voted for Trump's impeachment in 2021. She's facing a primary challenge from Joe Kent, a former Green Beret officer who's been endorsed by Trump. Over to the West Coast. With the reforms in the criminal justice system, California tried to bring forward a ballot initiative to remove the state's three strikes law this year. But the initiative didn't collect enough signatures. The attorney who took part in drafting the law explains what the law is and why he and his father put it together. California's three strikes law was written to avoid giving a second chance to the wrong kind of person. That's according to Michael Reynolds, a private attorney who helped author the law. He explained to California Insider's CM Karami how three strikes law works. The three strikes law, to get this, the highest sentence under that, which is 25 years to life, you're, you had to commit a felony as your triggering um, crime, but you had to have at least two serious or violent prior felonies. In California, it costs about $106,000 per year to incarcerate an inmate. But Reynolds says society pays an even higher cost when the criminals are released to commit crimes. He experienced the tragedy firsthand. After his sister was murdered in July 1992, he and his father started the Three Strikes Law initiative. We had this explosion of crime in California, and it had just been getting worse and worse and worse until the, the, the early 1990s. It just became intolerable. Uh, and that, of course, is when my sister was killed uh, by repeat felons who were on parole. And, and sure enough, uh, the rap sheets of the, the, the men who killed my sister were um, 
case in point of why you have to change the balance of power in favor of law-abiding citizens and not in favor of these criminals with a rap sheet a mile long. California crimes are divided into three types. Infractions are the lowest type of crime, like running a stop sign. Misdemeanors are medium-level crimes that don't usually result in incarceration. Felonies are the most serious, punishable by time in state prison. After the Three Strikes Law passed in 1994, prisoners had to serve at least 80% of their sentence before they are eligible for parole. In 2021, the Attorney General proposed to repeal it, saying it would decrease the prison population and use the funds for education, restorative justice, and transitional housing. But Reynolds said the right people were behind bars. The reason the prison population didn't explode as, you know, which is what a lot of the pundits said, was because the people who were locking up were already going to prison. They were serving life in prison anyway. They were just doing it in installments. They would, you know, do two or three years for a, a serious crime. Out, they'd they'd come out, and then within a few months, they'd be right back in. So we were just eliminating that interregnum in between prison sentences. And in doing so, we were eliminating the crimes they were committing which means we were preventing more and more people from becoming crime victims. Reynolds added that it wasn't only a higher police presence that kept crime low, but also keeping the career criminals off the streets. When someone needs help in a crisis, they all know to dial 911. And now the mental health crisis version of that is live with a similarly short number, 988. With the newly established number comes newly established call centers. That's where NTD's David Lamb went to see how it all works. On Tuesday, the County of Santa Clara in Northern California debuted its new crisis call center to help those with mental health crises. The number 988 is a combined line from different call services, which previously received hundreds of calls per day. Our ultimate goal is making sure that we send the right response to the right call. If it's a mental health call, we want to be able to send a clinician. If it's a public safety call, it's going to go back to public safety. If it's, if it's a family in crisis, we're going to be able to get them counseling. Now, they're trying to implement it under one roof. Come this fall, this whole section will be filled with teams from different response units, and it's to make things simple for those who call 988. According to the county, they have 10 full-time county staff and 75 volunteers trained to help those experiencing emotional distress such as thoughts of suicide, mental health, or substance use. Yeah, I think it's essential. A program I, I, manager with the county crisis. says there's been an uptick on demand and services from callers. When you're in crisis, when you're having, when you're having a crisis situation, uh, you don't want to have to press a bunch of phone tree options and call a bunch of different numbers and be transferred around as much. That's you, you want to be able to talk to somebody. The responders on the other end can deploy in-person help or connect to another service. On the non-crisis team, we get 400 calls a day. On the suicide, we get about 100 calls. Again, we get right around 75 to 80,000 total calls a year. Along with the new 988 crisis number, the county still has a non-crisis line at 1-800-704-0900. In the future, they hope to unify it under the 988 phone system in order to expedite their services. David Lamb, Entity News, California. And now over to sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. National star outfielder Juan Soto has been traded to the San Diego Padres in a massive seven-player deal. San Diego gave up two prized rookies, plus three of their top minor league prospects, to pry the 23-year-old away from Washington. In addition to Soto, the Padres will also receive all-star first baseman Josh Bell. Padres first baseman Eric Hosmer was also supposed to be part of the package headed to DC, but he invoked his partial no-trade clause according to MLB.com. He'll be headed to Boston in a separate deal instead. Soto made waves in 2018 when he debuted as a 19-year-old and finished runner-up in the Rookie of the Year balloting. He won his first batting title two years later and last season finished second in the MVP race. The two-time All-Star though was put on the trade block just a couple weeks ago when he turned down a reported $440 million extension. The 15-year deal would have been the largest contract in baseball history had he accepted it. 
In other baseball news, two-time Cy Young winner Jacob deGrom will make his season debut tonight for the Mets in Washington. deGrom won back-to-back -back Cy Youngs in 2019 and 2020, but was shut down last July after 15 starts with elbow inflammation. This season, he was shut down again in spring training with a stress reaction in his right shoulder. The New York Mets, though, have thrived in his absence under new manager Buck Showalter, leading the NL East with a 65-37 record. In basketball news, WNBA star Brittany Griner was back in a Russian courtroom today as her drug possession trial continues. The prosecution had a narcotics expert analyze the cannabis found in her luggage, while Griner's defense disputed the analysis. Meanwhile, the U.S. State Department has offered a deal to Russia for the release of Griner as well as former Marine Paul Whelan. The deal is rumored to have the U.S. sending international arms dealer Victor Boot to Russia in exchange for the two Americans. Griner's trial continues Thursday with both sides scheduled to make closing arguments. In NFL news, Miami Dolphins owner Stephen Ross was fined and suspended after the league found him guilty of tampering with Tampa Bay star Tom Brady. An NFL investigation found the team had impermissible contact with Brady and his agent on two different occasions, late last year and again after the season ended while Brady was a member of the Buccaneers. The discussions focused on Brady becoming a limited partner, possibly becoming an executive and even playing quarterback for Miami. The NFL also found that the team had impermissible communications with New Orleans head coach Sean Payton without seeking consent from the Saints. The contact with Payton was before the Super Bowl winning coach retired. In addition to the fines and suspensions, the Dolphins were docked a first round pick in 2023 and a third rounder in 2024 as punishment for tampering. That's all for your sports news today. Back to you, Steph. Thanks, Dave. And coming up, we speak to a journalist who says mainstream media has not been reporting accurately on the protests by Dutch farmers. And augmented reality glasses that could soon change the lives of people with hearing loss. With the help of an app, the smart spectacles can display subtitles for live conversations. That and more after this short break. Dutch farmers have been protesting for more than a month, and their movement is showing no signs of running out of steam. They've received support from people inside and outside of Europe, but the discussion with the government doesn't seem to go anywhere. NTD's David Vives spoke to a Dutch journalist who's been reporting from the protests. Dutch farmers are not giving up. They have been protesting for weeks in response to the Dutch government's legislation aiming to cut nitrogen gas emission by 50%, by 2030. The policy would force thousands of farmers to reduce their livestock or even close their farms. As part of their latest protest actions, they have been dumping manure and garbage on motorways and set fires along roads. Tension and polarization seem to be on the rise as some media outlets label farmers as having been radicalized. Ido Dijkstra is an independent journalist with the Endecker-Grant newspaper. He says mainstream media outlets have not reported accurately on the protests. Uh, but every now and then there are blockades of, of roads and what they are doing now uh, uh, quite often is dump garbage on the, on the road, like farmers' garbage, uh, and uh, they put fire to, uh, uh, to their uh, uh, dried grass. And this draws attention uh, mostly on the, on the social media. The mainstream media are ignoring it or trying to frame it like some kind of terrorist uh, farmer thing, which is quite unfair, I think. Meanwhile, the government has appointed a mediator, but some farmers reject him as independent, as he's a member of Prime Minister Mark Rutte's center-right party. 
they try to to uh, make the farmers look unreasonable because the government said, oh, uh, let's talk and we have a negotiator. Then um, that's their offer. But the farmers say, uh, no, this guy, this Remkes, he's not a fair one to negotiate with. Like I would turn it around. Uh, let the farmers pick pick the, the the person who negotiate, and then the government has to to uh, deal with that. That would be the more fair way. According to Netherlands Environmental Assessment Agencies, the country's biodiversity is under threat. A representative of the Dutch branch of environmental group WWF says farmers need to work with nature as an ally and that means having fewer cows and pigs. Some observers question the evidence for the need to cut farmers' livestock. Official government figures show farmers' owned livestock has remained relatively constant for the last 10 years, except for dairy goat. Some experts question whether ecosystem shifts prompted by greater nitrogen deposition can be properly defined as damage. This is that they always uh, put in big terms like biodiversity that nobody can really measure so they're saying oh we we need the experts to uh tell us what biodiversity actually is and we need the experts to um show us in the nature that it's uh going the wrong way but they always have a select uh portion of of um experts Dutch farmers recently gained new allies from right-wing parties across Europe in their struggle with the government. Former US President Donald Trump framed the Dutch government legislation as a climate tyranny out to oppress freedom-loving farmers. David Vives, NTD News. Augmented reality glasses could soon change the lives of 12 million adults with hearing loss in the UK. A British startup has released an app that can transcribe live conversations and display them on the screen of the glasses. Here's NTD's Trevor Piper with the details. These aren't your typical sunglasses. Josh Feldman, hard of hearing since birth, is using them to read what people say to him. Hello. Hey Josh, it's Jillian. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing well. Do you want to get dinner sometime this week? Yeah, definitely. That sounds good. Good, I can't wait. Looking forward to seeing you. Okay, I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Gillian. Speak soon. It's powerful. It's powerful. I can't understate the power and the importance for people who are hard of hearing all over the world to feel that they don't have to solely rely on lip reading anymore. On lip reading anymore. And it's a really, it's a big moment. The company behind the app is called X-Ray Glass. Company CEO Dan Scarf felt inspired when he discovered his 97-year-old grandfather's increasing isolation as he lost his hearing. There was just a little epiphany moment where I thought, well, hang on a second. He watches TV all the time with subtitles on. Why can't we subtitle the world? Scarf said the audio stream is taken from a microphone on the glasses and transcribed through a piece of software, and then captions are displayed on an augmented reality display. Users can also read conversations on the phone. Steve Crump, founder of Deaf Kids International, said the X-ray glass enabled him to be involved in conversation. I'm getting a real-time uh, stream of subtitled information where ordinarily I might be behind, I might not quite catch everything, but this is giving me a real-time narrative which enables me to be informed, it enables me to be involved, it enables me to make decisions because I know what is being said. And smart assistants like Alexa or Siri can also be understood by the transcription service. Alexa, what's the weather forecast? Right now in Arkley, it's 23 degrees Celsius with mostly cloudy skies. X-ray glass was incorporated less than three months ago. It recently launched its service to about 100 beta testers and aims to make it publicly available in September. A free version of the app will be available, but users will have to pay for premium features like speaker identification. People with hearing loss are already using apps on their phones offering live transcription in their daily lives. CEO Scarf said X-ray glass can already recognize who's speaking, 
and will soon have the power to translate languages and pick up voice tones, accents and pitch. He said its second version will improve transcription thanks to automated lip reading. Trevor Piper, NTD News. And finally, despite the rising cost of materials and labor shortages, a growing number of people are updating their homes to adapt to remote work or school, or because they can't afford the cost of a new home. And if that's a trend you're looking to jump on, experts say not all upgrades have the same return on investment. Here's a closer look at the projects that have the biggest payoff. With home prices soaring, a growing number of homeowners are choosing to upgrade their homes, but experts say not all renovations have the same payoff. When the market is getting hotter, when people's homes are becoming worth more money, they see investing more money into the home as a solid choice. If you want the best return on investment on your next home remodel project, ditch the idea of a spa-like bathroom or magazine-worthy kitchen. A recent report from the National Association of Realtors and the National Association of the Remodeling Industry says interior projects that recoup the most money are refinishing existing hardwood floors or installing new ones. The estimated cost of new hardwoods is around $5,000, but with a $6,500 return on investment, 118% of your cost is recovered. Change flooring from carpet into hardwood or LVP, you are much less likely to run yourself into big problems that can drain your budget. Another project with high ROI, an insulation upgrade, with 100% of the cost expected to be recovered. For comparison, the cost of adding a new primary bedroom suite is estimated at $182,000, with only about 100000 of that cost recovered. One big mistake that inexperienced homeowners or investors make when they're doing a renovation is they go too grandiose. It is very common when you start moving walls to find electrical issues that need to be brought up to code, plumbing leaks that you didn't know existed. When it comes to the outside of your house, replacing the roof and the garage doors have the best return on investment, with both recouping all their costs. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.